Welcome to the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring an interview with director Philip Swift of the new documentary, The Dark Side of Disney, which is available April 20th on Video On Demand through Amazon and Vimeo, as well as on DVD. Inspired by Leonard Kinsey's best-selling book, The Dark Side of Disney, the documentary explores the extreme obsessions of many adults who experience Disney World and Disneyland from a skewed, off-kilter perspective that's never been seen before. We'll also discuss Philip Swift's work on his very first feature-length documentary called The Bubble, which explores the small town of Celebration, Florida that was created by the Walt Disney Company right outside of Disney World. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. You can follow us on Twitter at jogroad, like us on Facebook, jogroadproductions, follow us on Instagram at jogroadproductions, and don't forget to write us a nice review on the iTunes podcast page under the Road to Cinema podcast, and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions. And now we join director Philip Swift as he discusses his work on his new documentary, The Dark Side of Disney, which is available April 20th on demand through Amazon.com and Vimeo, as well as on DVD. Visit The Dark Side of Disney on Facebook, as well as their website, dsodoc.com. How you became fascinated with Disney World and sort of pulling back the curtain to discover what was behind there, sort of starting with the Celebration documentary. Yeah, uh, it's kind of, it runs in the family is the easiest thing to say, is that my, uh, I grew up, um, we didn't really, like growing up I didn't really have like religion, but we, we prayed to the altar of a mouse, the church <laughs> of the mouse is what we did. Um, I grew up in Ohio, Akron, Ohio, and we would go almost every year down to, to Orlando to go to Walt Disney World, that was like our pilgrimage to Mecca. Um, and uh, I remember specifically, actually, in 1994, when they were um, breaking ground on Celebration, uh, my mom uh, driving through, uh, like, like, taking time out of her, like, she always had the super busy, like, structured Disney schedule, like, you know, 7 a.m. in Magic Kingdom, and then we can see the parade at, like, 11, and then run over to Epcot, and then see this thing. So she actually took time out of her busy schedule to, like, drive us through, me and my grandma and I, um, through uh, the the area where they were building Celebration. And she was blown away. It was like nothing. It was like holes in the ground. And she literally was like, oh, this is amazing. It's going to be so great. And I didn't think about it again for another, I don't know, it must have been like 10 years, um, maybe, maybe even more, um, until, no, it was about 20 years, I think, didn't think about it again, until there was that murder uh, that happened in the town. Uh, someone was, uh, you know, bludgeoned with an axe in their own home, uh, and it was made national news, made international news. There was a big article in um, the Daily Mirror uh, in England that, that came and they interviewed people, um, and someone was quoted as saying, I never met so many swingers until I moved to Celebration, Florida. And I found out later while making The Bubble, um, which is the documentary about Celebration Florida, that, um, that 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 quote was completely taken out of text, uh, out of context. Um, and, uh, but anyways, I was uh, very intrigued by the town, especially after the murder, and I remember taking that trip with my mom. And I had some time off, so my wife and I just drove down from, we live in New York now, and we drove down, we spent a week there um, in April of, I think, 2012, I think it was. 
uh, and just met a lot of people and, and got enough footage to you know do a Kickstarter to um, then go back for uh, 10 days in November of 2012. Yeah, what was uh, what was your impression of sort of the people that chose to live in this area? And also, too, I think there was the, um, which I think was mentioned in your documentary, there was a, uh, a standoff at a house that was being uh, foreclosed on or something to that effect. Yeah, there was a, a gentleman that kind of lost his job and it sounds like he lost a lot uh, in the stock market and everything. And um, he ended up like, uh, you know, holding, basically holding his family hostage. Uh, and they, somehow the police got wind of it and came and surrounded the house and they had the whole SWAT team and they had a, he said that he had a bomb um, and they had a little like robot that they, you know, to, like set up to the house to, I don't know, inspect. And then the, he like shot the robot, which was a big deal that people kept talking about when I talked to people about that incident. Um, but my personal, um, you know, when my wife and I went for that first week, uh, we would go and do these interviews with these people. They were all very interesting, you know, uh, you know very, very interesting, obsessed individuals. People, you know, one woman in the film we interviewed had been on 85 Disney cruises. And last I checked, it was well over 100. She's very proud of it. She has a blog where she tracks it all. And, and that to me, that doesn't really, I'm not, that doesn't interest me in any way. It's like uh, a waste of money and, and would, you know, melt my brain after the third or fourth time. But um, what we found when we left these interviews with these people that were very interesting, very, very odd people, um, is that they were just these normal people that had, you know, kind of, invested in the town and they, they wanted to see it succeed and my wife and I would be very quiet as we drove away you know for five or ten minutes uh, from these interviews and eventually one of us uh, would break the ice by saying oh, this town isn't so bad we could live here We're, you know some of the people are kind of quirky but uh, and there, were this, there was a murder there was this police standoff but you know we live in New York City where there's a million you know oddballs every second on every corner uh, and there's crime all the time um, so you know celebration to me um didn't seem like such a bad place uh and so i think it comes out in the film is that it is it's not necessarily the, the at the end of the day it's not the story of celebration and the biggest story of like any town in america where people uh tend to try to like live um a, a certain kind of dream um and then the reality they have to deal with so that dream doesn't come true yeah, I was curious uh, for you, since you know you and your family have such a close relationship in terms of going to Disney World frequently, and um, you know, at what point in your life did you start to sort of maybe want to dig a little deeper in terms of seeing what was behind this veneer of uh, of you know the Disney image in a way? I, I think it first started when I know when I was really into Epcot, as most kids that had grown up in the '80s were, and I went to the parks. Um, there's something about like the dream of the future that was always, always exciting to me. Um, and I, it, well, in the very, in the 80s, it was very exciting. It was very, oh, you know, hori- right, like horizons, which was showing you potential futures and things like that. Um, got you really excited. But then over time, like into the 90s, uh, in, in the later 90s, especially when the, when the, that part, Epcot in particular, started to get it like a little bit overhauled and they kind of were letting things like go by the wayside, um, some of the rides sort of become, you know, kind of neglected, uh, and they start bringing in new things, which didn't seem to really fall in line with that, like, original, like, you know, uh, educational experience. Um, I started noticing this change, and I became really interested in, like, kind of, you know, looking around, peeking behind corners, and uh, seeing what was going on. I, I was always interested in the new construction that they were um, putting in in places, and, and with the hope that it was going to be, you know, live up to that original dream. 
Um, but I was never, I never really got, people look at, the, they hear the title of the film, Dark Side of Disney, they think, oh, that's just some jaded guy. But I think in the film it really comes across that's not about that at all. Like, I'm not, I never got, like, mad about it. I was never jaded about it. I went with my family well into my teens, and even a couple times in my early 20s, we, I went uh, with my mom, because um, it was just kind of what we did, and, it, and it, 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 it was fun. It was fun to go back and see these same things over and over again. Um, and kind of kind of check in to see how it was evolving, uh, which is I think the same thing that was happening with Celebration when I talked to those people too. Is that they you know when they bought into it in the beginning they were very excited, but over time it just changed and kind of got away from the original message. Um, and so I started yeah I definitely was was interested in later in my teens and then early twenties was into the kind of history of things and what what the original idea was and I I remember seeing that original Epcot film that Disney made where he kind of where Walt Disney tells his plan of the future of, of Epcot and I think like God that's such a ridiculously like amazingly weird uh, you know dystopian uh, or utopian dream um, that falls in line with like you know some of the stuff I was into at the time like uh, we, we look at video games like um, Bioshock and things like that that are like these these, these fallen dreams uh, that I could totally see something like that happening with, with that original plan for Epcot and I became really fascinated with all of that with those kind of weird little nuances yeah, there's something um, to me that, you know, Epcot, you know, was sort of striving to be this kind of, uh, you know, this mecca of like, you know, showing science and all these different cultures from the different uh, countries they have in World Showcase. But um, at the same time, it sort of becomes this kind of, uh, you know, uh, sort of cheeky retro place. And, you know, even, you know, I haven't been there probably in about 10 years, but from what I remember in the 2000s, it was, you know, it still sort of harkened back to feeling like you were in the 1980s and not really in sort of like a future, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I think Tomorrowland has always had that vibe for me at Magic Kingdom. Is that it's sort of, again, this, this false promise of what the future was going to be with like, you know, rocket cars and wet way people movers and things like that. Um, and so I've always been fascinated by that, that the false hope of, of uh, the future, like even going back to like a World's Fair kind of stuff. Always, I always thought like the idea of what the future was going to be in the '60s and '70s was always really exciting. When you look at like what we have now and what is you know ostensibly the future compared to 1960, it's not they didn't plan any of this like iPhones and uh, the internet. Like none of that was um, at the World Fair in the '60s. It's a totally different, weird future that we ended up in. Uh, so going into the Leonard Kinsey book, uh, The Dark Side of Disney, which is you know really the springboard for the Dark Side of Disney documentary. Uh, what were you sort of initially taken in by when you read the book? And, you know, were you sort of looking into what this sort of subculture was that Leonard was talking about? Uh, I remember seeing it just randomly coming across the book. I, I can't remember if it was at a bookstore on the internet or not, but I got a copy of it. And, um, and it was, it's a really easy read. Like, I blew through it, like, one sitting and uh, found it really amusing, especially his, like, uh, the last chapter is this account of like going into the Otildors, the the secret like you know employee only area, um, and I kind of you know kind of forgot about it. You know it was kind of funny to read that having gone you know multiple times growing up and thinking about all the crazy stuff um, that I didn't get into uh, and thinking oh god I wish I'd had that book when I was a teenager. But um, I actually then was looking for after the bubble came out I was looking for sort of. Um, alternative avenues for like marketing or like outreach uh and i thought oh there's that book that is tangentially connected kind of to um to the bubble and the celebration and sort of the, the dark side of, of disney 
Uh, and so I sent a copy of the DVD to Leonard Kinsey, just kind of out of the blue, and said, hey, like your movie, or I'm sorry, like your book, uh, check out this movie. I think you'd like it. Maybe if you do, you could you know, talk about it on your blog. And he did. He really liked it, and he talked about it, and we saw a little bump in sales, which is nice. Um, and then he and I just kind of randomly back and forth talked for a little bit over time. Uh, and then, uh, as most you know, creative types do, I got you know, I started to get that itch for like, what, what's next? You know, people were asking me like, oh, you know, you made your first feature-length documentary. What's next? And I, you know, you get that itch. You hear a piece of music. For some reason, it's always music with me. I'll hear like a song, and specifically stuff that my friend Gabe Shrey does, who I use a lot of his music for my my films. Um, I'll hear something and I'll just have like this visual in my brain, or I'll think like, oh, I got to film something to cut to this music. It's got to be something. Uh, and then I remembered Leonard's book, and I had been kind of, you know, becoming friends with him. And I pitched it to him, the idea of uh, looking at it. And initially, it was the, what the pitch was, um, looking at it almost as like a, a series of challenges. Like, okay, let's look at your book. You say you can do all this stuff, so let's go see if we can. Um, but then I started doing a little research on the Internet, uh, just looking at YouTube videos and things, and seeing all these people that were, you know, doing fine stuff, but like jumping off rides and getting high at the park and having sex at the park. And it was all out there kind of already, the, the, the how to do it. You know, so you, okay, here's the book telling you, you know, how or where to get high in the park. And here's a YouTube video of some, you know, guy, you know, smoking a, a joint behind the, the castle on Magic Kingdom. Um, just quickly I realized, you know what, people have done the how already. That's done, that's taken care of. My question then became the why. Like why for a film, if you're going to make a documentary, call it a documentary, not just a YouTube video. Um, we really need to examine, like, why do people feel compelled to do these kind of things. You know, why can't they just go and pay their 100 bucks for their daily pass and go and have a fine time? What compels someone to jump off the rides? Or what compels someone to feel they need to get, like, super stoned before they go? Or what compels someone like my mom to have this need to scatter her own mother's ashes uh, in the moat around Cinderella Castle at Magic Kingdom? And I think that's what um, Leonard really attached to, and I kind of pitched it the, that way to him. He, was really excited because he didn't he, he said himself like I, I do the video he said it, you know he has his own YouTube channel, um, page where he shows a lot of videos that he does um, and so it's already like a lot of the how and when I pitched it to him as the why uh, that really hooked him uh, for you in terms of uh, you know the actual making of the documentary what is sort of your line between you know developing the overall concept for the piece and you know then figuring out what you need to shoot um you know sort of in a way sort of thinking about you know do you sort of know what the film is before you shoot it if that makes sense yeah i seriously i started out filmmaking like i think a lot of kids in the 80s did uh um as just making movies with my friends. That's kind of how we, we, you know, we would just make funny movies to make each other laugh and then watch them and, you know, kind of move on. But I got the bug that I couldn't shake, you know, as early as the age of 13, just like couldn't, I had to like keep doing it. And the thing that always, I always enjoyed about uh, making movies was the editing process. And so even through like my 20s, I you know, went to film school and did stuff like that. I was still doing narrative stuff and, um, and I always found it fun, but I, I felt like, the editing, um, in some ways, almost is just kind of a afterthought when it comes to narrative film. Like, you have a script, you have the scenes, you're directing actors, and then you get to the editing room, and it's kind of, you know, you know what you're doing. Uh, what I found compelling about more about documentary is not only, A, is it is it cheaper, which is something I found out of film school, but I didn't have money to, to make a narrative uh, film anymore. Um, documentary is something you could pick up a camera and start talking to someone and, you know, get some B-roll and kind of then piece a, a story together in the editing room. 
which was really compelled me to, to pursue documentary. And now I've made a I've had one short and now two features. Um, and with each of them, I, I went in with a basic idea of what I was thinking. Okay, like I'm making a movie about this thing, this topic. And I know these things about it already, um, but it isn't until you start talking to people and interviewing people um, that you can start to see the story kind of come together. Like there's things that I wouldn't in the dark side of Disney. Um, there's kind of a little emotional like thread throughout the film where my wife is eight months pregnant uh, while I'm out doing all this crazy stuff in the park. Um, and not to give it away, but if you look at my you know Instagram feed, we obviously have a thriving 16-month-old baby now. But um, so that baby does arrive in the end. But like that, man, that that drama is there through the film thanks to editing. It happened in real life, but we're able to like capture things as they go. Um, and it's the same thing with uh, with interviews. You sit down to interview someone, uh, and it could take you know you, you'll you have your list of questions, but if it's a good interview, it's gonna go off that list and you're going to be talking to them for an hour, two hours, three hours. Um, and then you're sitting there at your computer thinking like, God, I have three hours of, of interview with this guy. I got to find the story. And then, you know, you start piecing it together and then it's really, I, I, it's kind of one of my favorite things on earth um, that I've ever done in my entire life is taking like several interviews with several different people that are like hours. You have like a dozen hours of footage with three different interviews with four different people. Um, and you start to build a conversation uh, between these people that I've never met in their entire life, but through the magic of editing, you can create this flow of the story. Um, and you see it really well, I think, I hope to think, uh, in the bubble where you have like four or five, six different residents of the town telling the story, um, the, sort of the oral history of the town, and it's bouncing back and forth between these different people. Um, but when you sit down and watch a segment, it hopefully comes across pretty seamlessly. I was curious, what um, what were some of the challenges uh, going into do the dark side of Disney? Because you were, uh, you know, you were shooting in the in the park. You were, uh, you know, sort of venturing into some risky territory. Uh, even in the film, you uh, encounter, I believe, someone who you were trying to reach out to. Sort of had, uh, you know, some history of doing uh, crazy things in the park. Um, so, what were some of those uh, challenges that you found? When we started, like the interviews initially with Dark Side of Disney were, were the easy parts. Those are always, I think, the easy part. Um, and Leonard was so well connected, the author of the book was so well connected to that scene um, that we were able to meet enough people that it really felt like a nice, substantial, uh, you know, interview uh, process was happening. Um, then what starts to happen though is that, of course, you want to, you can't just have interviews; you need to have all that other footage. Uh, so we ran into a, a couple of different, you know, fun situations. There's a great sequence in the movie where we're driving around with um, a guy named Hoot Gibson, who has spent like the last 30 years kind of sneaking around the parks, like jumping off rides, filming behind the scenes. And he takes us on, and the movie takes us on a little drive through the uh, the shops where they do a lot of repairs on, on uh, ride vehicles and build new vehicles and dismantle old ones. Um, and sort of sneaking through, we're like, hey, four guys in a car, we have, you know, two DSLRs with like shoulder mounts and we have like one camcorder and two flip cams and our phones and we're filming all this stuff and he has you know 30 years of experience doing this so every single time he'd see like a security person he'd be like okay uh put your camera down right now uh we'd have to like slowly like smooth through and kind of wave like we were supposed to be there and then you know four cameras would pop up again as soon as we passed that security person um so that part was kind of a breeze but then the more where the paranoia starts to build is when you 
talk to a lot of these people that are, are used to doing these things, what they call urban exploring, or um, they refer to themselves as darksiders, you know, doing these things uh, where they have fake cast member IDs um, that'll let them go anywhere in the park. You start to talk to them, and they all have stories about their friends who got busted uh, for, you know, being somewhere they shouldn't or doing something they shouldn't uh, or having a fake ID. Um, and what's so interesting about it is that. Uh, they, it starts to breed this paranoia inside of you. You start to think, oh God, like, yeah, I'm gonna get busted. Like, uh, there were, it comes across in the film in one part where we get, I try to buy tickets at the hotel that we're staying at, um, and they tell me that the system's down, uh, and I have to go to guest services when I get to the park. And I had been, I had, I had this idea in my head that that was like the, one of the biggest red flags. That's how people get um, what they call trespassed. Uh, you basically, you go to guest services, they, they sell you your ticket, and then they say, oh, you know, oh, look, you're uh, eligible for an upgrade. And then they take you over to like, uh, you know, a little holding area, and you sit there and you wait, and then the sheriff comes in from Osceola County, uh, and you are served with a trespassing, you know, warrant for doing something illegal. Um, in that case, I was worried that they were gonna like bust me for scattering, helping my mom to scatter my grandmother's ashes. Um, but. The very interesting thing about all that is that no one cared. Like, we weren't, you know, on this um, be on the lookout bolo list. We didn't have a red flag attached to our names and IDs. Um, we walked in with bags, like backpacks filled with, like I said, DSLRs and shoulder mounts and mics and all this stuff. They would open the bag, and if there wasn't any, like, bottles of, you know, booze or anything, they would say, okay, have a magical day. And you'd walk in. Um, and so we didn't have any really big issues. I think one of the biggest disappointments I had with the film is that I kind of wanted to, something to happen. Uh, you know, at the Q and A's at screenings, people always say, "Like, well, what if you got banned? What would have happened?" And to me, that would have been a very interesting part of the film. If we did get banned, we could have seen what that process was like and um, seen what maybe the uh, appeal process is like. Um, but unfortunately, we didn't get too crazy. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Uh, uh, you know, everybody in Disneyland and Disney World has a camera. And uh, especially after, you know, with Escape from Tomorrow, where they, you know, they brought in a full crew and a cast and, and everything else. And, you know, they were able to sort of go under the radar. So it sort of shows you that, uh, you know, now with all of this new technology, DSLRs and cell phone cameras, you know, people are really able to, uh, you know, create content or, you know, just sort of capture certain things in the park without being detected. Sure, and in a world now, like it's interesting to look at the the you had Escape from Tomorrow come out of Sundance, where you know big deal that it was a big hit, and um, they kept saying never going to get distribution, and they got distribution, never going to be on Netflix, and it was on Netflix, um, never going to be on the shelves at Walmart, and then it was on the shelves at Walmart. Um, and Disney apparently never, you know, never never did anything. Uh, and then on the kind of the flip side of that, this past year you have a film like Tangerine, which was shot on an iPhone, and looks like it's a gorgeous movie. Uh, you know, it got a, a ton of uh, critical acclaim. Um, so we're now at a level like where, okay, I don't even need to worry about DSLRs or anything like that for the stuff I'm trying to do. Um, you know, you can easily roll in with, you know, a couple of iPhones in your pocket and, and get really good, high quality footage. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was curious for you, um, you know, going into the park and, uh, you know, sneaking into uh, the area, I believe it's called the Utilidors, as you mentioned. Um, was that a was that a big concern for you as far as uh, you know g- getting into that area and exploring? Or uh, I have a history. Of, I grew up in Akron, Ohio, which is uh, you know it, it's like used to be the I think it still is the, the global headquarters to um, Goodyear and Firestone Tires. And so it's 
uh, kind of this little uh, dying industrial town, and they're they're doing all right these days. But when I was growing up, there was a lot of like abandoned factories and abandoned buildings, abandoned shopping malls. And my friends and I would would you know, especially when we had our licenses and could drive, we would drive around to these abandoned places, sneak around, and kick in doors and snoop around where we shouldn't be. And uh, you know, a couple times we did get you know stopped by the police and uh, never got busted or you know hard or anything. We just got a kind of a, a talking down from them um and so and i hadn't done anything like that kind of like snooping around we always called it snooping around hadn't done anything like that in, in a very long time um and so there was something like inside of me that got that you know kind of little buzz when when we started you know doing this process um leonard connected me with a guy that makes uh, fake cash number ids for people who want that for some reason and um basically we just uh, i wore a hidden wireless uh, microphone and uh, he ushered me through the, to the uh, through the utilidors, the proper like the proper way to say it. You go you go through the utilidors into the cast member areas. Uh, and as soon as we walked in the first door, there were like two guys sitting there, like having a smoke break, like just hanging out, like but like there were two maybe like utility guys who knows what they did, and they didn't give a shit at all. They were just like, oh hey, and we just walked, kept walking. Uh, we nodded and kept walking, and then we walked all around the entire loop of the utilidors. Um, and uh, and I was the, the truth of it all, and I, and I say in the film too, is that I was a little underwhelmed by it. Like, you know, there was um, it was sort of like being behind the scenes at a, a shopping mall. If you've ever done that, um, it was just you know very you know uh, doors. It was a long like hallway with a bunch of like you know circuit breakers and utility boxes and things like that. Uh, after the fact, someone told me that. Um, in a post 9-11 world they, uh, have, they have a full on armory down there like in case there is a, t- a terrorist attack or, or something like apparently there's a room with body armor and assault rifles and you know tear gas and <laughs> everything they would need to quell like a I don't know a, a terrorist attack on, on Disney World um, and uh, had we walked in into that that would have been pretty pretty good uh, footage to get but um yeah, but it wasn't uh, that. It wasn't really that exciting or impressive to me. Uh, I think the account in Leonard's book is really good, and I think it kind of comes across um, as an exciting moment in the movie. Um, but we did get stopped by security, and the ID works no problem. Uh, but one thing to go back just in one step with the whole like stooping around where you shouldn't be. The, the interesting thing I learned of doing this whole dark side stuff is that legally Disney uh, can't do anything. Like if you are walking around where you shouldn't be, or if you are like. You know, smoking a joint behind something, um, or you come out of the family restroom. You've obviously, you know, just been in there with your girlfriend having sex. Um, they can't legally touch you or anything. So what they can do is they can say, "Can you come with us?" Like we, oh, we know you're what you're doing. Um, you shouldn't be here. You should come with us. But they can't legally touch you. So at that moment, you have the. It's the people that people get in trouble with. The people that go with the, the Disney security, and then you know, they sit in a room and wait for the the sheriff to come get them. You have that opportunity at the moment when they say, come with us, to just kind of like back up, hands in the air, and be like, you know what, I'm good. I'm just going to leave now. And you can just sort of like, you know, speed walk to the exit and get in your car and drive away. Um, and hopefully uh, get away scot-free. Yeah. As you mentioned before, uh, you know, you said editing is such an important part of the filmmaking process for you. Uh, how did the film change from your initial conception to uh, what is now the finished product? Uh, initially, like I said, it, it was going to be, we had kind of talked about how it would be a uh, kind of a, a chillest series of challenges, see if we could do what we could uh, lay out in the book. Um, 
but once we started filming and we, you know, I realized, like I said, that uh, it was more about the why. Um, it became really important to me to, to get that as much um, time with each uh, participant in the film that I could. Um, so it was nice to spend like a whole day with Hugh Gibson um, and kind of get you know access to his VHS library and stuff he did. Spend you know we spent several days with Logan, who's the um, young kid in the movie, um, and really got to know him. Um, I, I also teach filmmaking here in uh, in New York. Excuse me. I teach filmmaking in public schools here in New York through uh, a couple different organizations. Um, and one of the lessons I teach when you're doing interviews, uh, and it goes with, with uh, you know, a subject in a documentary in general, is the more time you spend with them, the more open they're going to be um, uh, on camera. Uh, and my first short documentary I made was only about a 20-minute documentary, and it was all about a friend of mine who passed away from leukemia, who was one of like the stars of um, a lot of the movies I made as a teenager. And uh, there's a really good moment in that movie where one of my friends who's kind of a, a, a goofier guy, he, towards the end of the movie, gets very emotional, and he gets very choked up and begins crying about the loss of our friend. Um, and the trick of that was that it's a 20-minute documentary, but that was a three-hour interview I did with that guy. Um, and so I was able to spend that time with him to get to that moment in the interview, to get to the, the, that emotional beat. Um, and that's what not only so I think it's a the coupling of the two. It's the time that you have to spend with someone, um, really like kind of getting to know them and really getting to the root of their story, um, coupled with uh, the the editing um, to kind of you know create the story uh, and flow have it have a flow that the audience can follow and um, feel good about when you do reach those emotional moments. I was curious um, for you, just you know, from a filmmaking business point of view, um, I know that The Bubble and also Dark Side of Disney are both uh, sort of self-distributed. Um, so I was wondering, you know, that in terms of making that choice to self-distribute and sort of what that entails uh, for you versus trying to sell the film to an outside company. Uh, the, the world's changing constantly, like with this with digital distribution and all this stuff. Uh, I think we're at a point in the movie and film industry and in the independent film industry uh, where the music industry was, you know, about 10, 15 years ago, where um, people were still creating content, but they were having a hard time trying to monetize it in any way. Um, you know, people were just giving their stuff away for free, and then that lowered the, the bar. And what we're seeing with filmmaking now is um, with something like YouTube, like uh, younger people, you know, students I work with all the time, they're more into uh, to YouTube these days. They really, you know, it's hard to get um, a teenager to, to really appreciate a longer film. They want to, like, sit down and watch, uh, kind of go down the rabbit hole that's YouTube, um, which is all well and good. I do that all the time, too. I'll go down the YouTube rabbit hole any given night. Um, so what we're seeing, though, is uh, what, I, what I enjoy about the, the modern um, digital distribution model is that it really does put the ownership of the film and its marketing and distribution into the hands of the creator. Um, one little anecdote that I can back that up with uh, is that uh, the bubble, uh, my last documentary, has been on you know Amazon and Vimeo on demand um, for a couple of years now, and I don't like, I don't really have the time to do any marketing for it. I don't have the, uh, the time to really push it out there and like you know work hard to to get it, its name out there. But it does make a consistent amount of money. It's not very much, but every month I get a little, you know, email from Amazon saying, "Oh, you know, you sold X amount of say, X amount of, um, you know, streams or X amount of DVDs." Uh, and it's okay. I mean, I'm not going to retire on it, but it pays like my phone bill. Um, and 
when I was interviewing Dana Snyder for Dark Side of Disney, a friend of his happened to be there who has like a, a great documentary that's, uh, you know, it's on Netflix now. And I was like, oh, that's so great. You know, your movie's on Netflix. It's wonderful. You must make a, you know, it must have been a great deal. And he was like, you know, it's not. It's not really a great deal to give you uh, kind of a lump sum up front and then you get a penny or so every time someone actually watches it, all right? Um, and I was like, oh, well, that seems all right. I mean, it's, I make, like, you know, this little bit of money every month. And he, like, kind of stopped me. He's like, wait, you've been making a little bit of money every month for three years now? That's amazing. Like, people don't do that on documentary films. And having that conversation with him coupled with um, the, uh, what's his name, Mark Duplass um, from, uh, you know, you know, Mark Duplass, uh, filmmaker and actor, and, uh, he's all over the place. Uh, he had that great keynote speech at South by Southwest last year where he was saying to independent filmmakers, like, don't be afraid of video on demand. Like, it's really the best thing that can happen to you now. You cut out the middleman, you get direct uh, sales uh, into your pocket, and the deal you're going to get with Amazon or Vimeo or whoever uh, is going to be better than you would um, through, a, a, you know, historically through a distributor. Um, and we've the problem, too, I've run into is that, you know, I, I'm not making a documentary that's about, you know, AIDS in Uganda or like the Rust Belts, um, you know, or, or something like Gasland, which has like a, a you know, a, a kind of a story behind it that is the social justice issue. Um, I'm making these kind of quirky little, you know, vanity projects almost on some level. Um, and the film festivals are not, they're not looking for that. They're not looking for that at all, which is fine. I still submit and I still write my checks to, to Sundance and, you know, appreciate the air um, bit of feedback you get in the rejection layer. Um, but if you look at the lineups for these festivals, these are, even the documentaries are like one, two, three million dollar film that people are uh, working on with giant crews. Uh, and so I've actually stopped saying that I'm an independent filmmaker and started saying I'm kind of like an individual filmmaker. You know, the, the last two movies I made um, have been on, you know, not only a shoestring budget, but also a shoestring crews, like a complete skeleton crew. Um, the last film, I, I hung out with a friend of mine for 10 days, uh, who's a great cinematographer, um, so he helped a lot with that. Uh, and my wife helped with some of the interviews initially, and a friend of mine did the music, but that's it. That was like literally the entire crew. Um, and this new one, I had a little more money thanks to you know two very successful Kickstarter campaigns. So I was able to bring a second um, camera guy on. So we had three camera people, and um, but but beyond that, like I, a, lot, I, a lot of it was just myself out there. For better or worse, too, I, I'll be the first to admit that like, I think maybe the work I do could be better if I was working with an actual producer, if I was working with someone else to you know, assist an editor or something. Um, but there's also something to be said for having a vision and, and making it your you know, whole singular vision. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think um, you know, from talking to other filmmakers out there, it seems that there are ways to really streamline, you know, your your crew, streamline your budget, and really, uh, you know, be able to make products. But it's interesting what you say as well about film festivals because I'm hearing the same thing from many other filmmakers, even, uh, you know, independent filmmakers who are making uh, features with uh, name talent. You know, the the film festival market seems to be more geared toward uh, sort of more established filmmakers or. Uh, films that sort of go in with some sort of pedigree, whether it be from a, an established production company. Uh, do, do you find that to be within talking to other filmmakers that you know that the film festival circuit has sort of uh, changed somehow? I think it's 
really changed. I think because you look at the things that were even like something like Slam Dance, which was a response to Sundance. Like they started Slam Dance as like kind of the urban underground, like you know, um, alternative, and, uh, and it's even become more you know marketable and everything, um, more mainstream. South by Southwest this year, like which was used to be a, a great like kitschy festival. Like the keynote speakers are Michelle and Barack Obama. Like that's that's insane. <laughs> Uh, I work, I actually teach for the Tribeca Film Institute here in New York, which is a, a wing of the Tribeca Film Festival. Uh, and they, like, the year that, that The Avengers came out, the first Avengers movie, that was the film that, like, opened the festival. Like, why is The Avengers opening the Tribeca Film Festival? That makes no sense at all. Uh, it, so it's a very strange, uh, you know, world that we're seeing with, with festivals. And I think more and more are popping up because it is becoming this sort of money-making industry for some people. You know, you can have a festival in your small town and charge people $50 pop for submission fees, let alone ticket sales, once you could handpick your films. Um, and it's a, kind of a complete racket that's kind of mind-blowing to me. You know, I, I, so I've, I've been, you know, in uh, the honor of transparency, like I've I submitted to, you know, the, kind of the obvious festivals that everyone says, well, you got to submit to South by Southwest. And you think, oh, I don't really have to. And then you get a letter from them saying, like, oh, we could only accept 2.8% of all, you know, submitted films. But thanks for the $100 check. Um, what I've noticed uh, and I had more success with after being denied some of the festivals is that I've kind of just done kind of a grassroots approach. Like, I wanted to be able to see my movie in a theater, and I wanted to be able to get it out there for large numbers of people to see. Um, and so I've had screenings in Anaheim, Orlando, Boston, Nashville, Chicago, um, Akron, Ohio. Uh, uh, we're doing one in Brooklyn this weekend. Or no, not at the end of the month. And uh, every single one of those was set up by myself. I, I basically just called a theater and found a good deal. And you book the theater for you know a three-hour block, and then you do your own promotion, um, sell tickets through Eventbrite or whatever site you want to use. Uh, and then you know you're paying for the theater. You're paying the Eventbrite takes a cut of ticket sales, and then you know you can make a little little more money selling DVDs or posters or whatever. Um, so not only, A, are you getting your movie out in theaters, which is cool and fun to do with, with your friends and people that live all over the country, um, you're also starting to make money. Like, if you submit a movie to a festival and it gets in, there's a you know, shot in the dark that you're going to get distribution. Of course, that's great. Um, but there's more likely getting in the festival, one of the, the hard steps, but then getting that distribution deal is even harder. Um, so having this, it's been really fun. The bubble, my first feature, we didn't really do much with it. I'll be honest. Like it was a small budget, super small budget film. Um, we kind of recouped the costs of it, uh, you know, within the first couple months of, of sales, and we had like one or two screenings. And then I was kind of fine. With, you know, I was like, you know, I'm going to move on to the next thing. I'll let it live on on Amazon and make a little bit of money. But with this new one, I've, I've been really invested in it. Uh, so it's been really fun to do, you know, all these screenings and have a little bit of money come in. Uh, we're ramping up for an April release on DVD and video on demand. Um, I'm really excited about it. Like I, I have a guy like redesigning the, the poster and everything, and I feel really connected to the film in a way that I feel like if I had, you know, gotten a distribution deal at a festival with with someone, um, I wouldn't feel as connected because it would have been this kind of work. I feel like would have been handed over to someone else. Um, but I'm still like down there in the, the dirt, like working on my you know, my movie even now in the. The, the, the you know marketing and distribution stage. Yeah. Well, in terms of uh, like you know selling your movie to you know video on demand platforms uh, like you were saying Vimeo, Amazon, which you've used. Um, if you're going to them without a distributor, are you sort of just pitching them the movie 
in a way or Sorry, sorry, wait, wait, one more time, what was that? Oh, in terms of, uh, you know, selling your film on video on demand platforms like Amazon Amazon or Vimeo, uh, since you're going to them without a distributor, are you the oh, one sort of right, going okay, to yeah, them yeah. pitching? Um, or uh, is that... Well, the great thing is you can, there's a couple services you can use to get you to, that are basically free, um, and they're limiting. Vimeo on demand I've really been happy with. Um, I use Vimeo all the time uh, for like everything, uh, you know, for student work, I, you know, I can go on and make password protected albums of, of, of films that students make and then we used to give DVDs to students and now we just give them a link to the album online that will watch his DVDs anymore. Um, so they can go home and you know show their movies to their friends and phones and stuff. But Vimeo has been great because I just upload my movie and then you go through the kind of you know application process, which is it's not even an application, but really you just fill out a couple things and then your film is live and it can be uh, it's the only way you can get the bubble like internationally now uh, streaming um, and uh, and it's a very simple process. There's no there's no uh, and you do have to pay for a Vimeo Pro uh, membership. Um, but, uh, you know, that pays for itself after a month or two of sales, uh, depending on how the sales go. Uh, and then Amazon is actually kind of similar, too. They don't, they don't promote it as well, because uh, I think they're kind of secretly, they don't want you to, to use the service. I don't know why. But they have a service called CreateSpace, um, which you can use for publishing books and uh, music and movies. Uh, and the only hang-up with it is that I think that's only in standard definition, um, so you can't stream um, or do DVDs or do Blu-rays. Um, but it sets up the whole thing. It gives you an Amazon page where you can buy, buy DVDs, print on demand DVDs. So I don't have to like worry about, you know, sitting on a thousand DVDs under my bed or anything. Um, and then they stream through, uh, Amazon, uh, video on demand. Um, and you set the prices and it's very simple, very easy, very easy to set up. Now, something that we're getting ready to do with the dark side of Disney is use a service like Distriber. Are you familiar with them? Uh, maybe loosely. Uh, are they sort of like an app? Is that? Yeah, it's with a website service called this distributor. I always mm-hmm. spell it, but it's like D I S T R B B E R. I don't know, something like that. One of those weird modern things where they drop the vowels. But um, the distributor is very interesting because what they do is they it's kind of a uh, you pay by service, whatever service you want. You submit your film. Um, and then they will do like quality control and like proper encoding and uh, I think they even do like closed captioning and things like that. Um, and it's, it's free to submit your film, but then you pay for which like channels you want to get on. So if you want to get on Netflix, it's like a $900 fee. If you want to get on Amazon Prime, it's, you know, probably about the same, but they work with everybody. So it's like Netflix, Vudu, you know, Hulu, um, all those streaming services. Uh, which hopefully then you think, oh, God, it's $900 to go to Netflix. But you pay that, and then you still get a deal with them where you're, you're, you're getting paid for every time someone watches the movie. Um, so it becomes this kind of like, okay, what am I going to do really? Like, did I make a movie good enough to, to, to you know, elicit the cost of that upfront payment to uh, a third-party like distributor? Uh, or do I just sit back and, like, think that it's going to do okay on the more, you know, inexpensive options? Um but again, it puts it all back into your own. You have control over it, um, which I really like. I'm really kind of crazy about it. Um, you know, if the next film come around, watch my my next movie. Maybe someone will come around and be like, "Hey, here's X amount of money to make a movie, and then we'll we get you know the rights of it." Uh, but you get this fat check. Oh, yeah, yeah. I guess I'd take that fat check. But right now, it's good. I like you know doing this kind of um, grassroots, you know, down in the dirt kind of uh, marketing and distribution.
Yeah, it's interesting um, talking to other filmmakers, even ones who've gotten uh, you know distribution deals for their films that they've made independently. It's still the transparency of how much money they're getting after the sale, and you know keeping track of the accounting of you know how many uh, DVDs or how many you know how many purchases there are on Amazon on demand or iTunes. You know that sort of uh, having it in your own in your own hands gives you that uh, that power to really understand how your f- film is doing uh, fiscally. Yeah, and it, it also like I did you know I, I did have a, a kid. Um, at the end of 2014, uh, she's 16 months now, and she's uh, she's doing great. But like, it takes that takes up all of my time. Like, I, I I'm with her almost every day, um, and it's awesome. I, I really love it. But then when I when it gets to be like you know eight o'clock and she's finally asleep and I'm um, I have time to do some stuff, uh, I don't really have the energy to to sit down and worry about you know websites and you know metrics and all that stuff. Um, so it does become kind of exhausting. And that's where I wish maybe I had a larger budget or more income directly from the movies um, to like hire someone to do it for me. Um, but right now, for right now, uh, where it's, it's interesting having this conversation with you because it's all the dawn. Like next month, we're pulling the trigger on releasing the film. Uh, so it would be interesting. Like I, I really do believe you know the book has sold fifty thousand copies. It's a consistent bestseller on Amazon. And, We've had a, you know, uh, basically uh, nothing but great, you know, press and reactions about the film. Um, so I'm excited to get it out there and see what happens. It could, you know, catch fire and become this thing um, that, you know, it does be all right. We'll see. Uh, so, so yeah, you talk to me in like two months. I might be like, yeah, no, I'm just dropping around in my Lamborghini. I'm working on that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's definitely, um, you know, just from looking around the internet. I mean, there's so many podcasts and uh you know blogs and different venues sort of geared toward this uh sort of subgroup of disney culture so i think there's definitely an audience out there definitely a market yeah i hope so yeah and even like even if people don't like the movie i think it's still gonna be or if they're like uh why there's no such thing as the dark side of disney they're still gonna go home i think and secretly like like i gotta see what this is about and like pay that dollar 99 to stream it on amazon or whatever uh so how can uh people see your film uh, well, right now, the best way to get any information on it is uh, through the website dsoddoc.com. It's like darksideofdisneydoc.com. So dsoddoc.com is the home uh, for the film right now. We are uh, Over the next month, we're going to be kind of redesigning the site um, to prepare for the, the launch um, of the film. Um, we partnered with a great artist named Josie Devora at roosterpop.com. Uh, he has done an amazing job like I'm very like I, I, he just showed me one of the work in progress uh, drafts today of the DVD cover and I'm really excited about it it's very um, it's it, it, to kind of give you a picture in your mind it's it looks sort of like one of those old like 90s Disney VHS tapes you know like those white plastic ones that everybody had oh with the um, uh, the, the case with the uh, I know what you're talking about <laughs> yeah and like, and like the line it was like a line yeah. case and this like white plastic case and always had like the emblem at the top that was presents the Lion King. Um, so that's kind of what it looks like, and then the image is like everybody in the film. It's kind of very cartoony uh, style, uh, looking at a map of the uh, the park, uh, and it's almost sort of like the Goonies, like it's all candlelit and like it's a very it's awesome. The guy did a great job. Um, so we are going to be uh, launching that uh, next month at dsoddoc.com. Um, we also have a Facebook page for the film, uh, Dark Side of Disney documentary film. 
you can sign up there and uh, give us a like, and we'll you'll stay up to tune, uh, stay into tune with uh, all the news coming up.